Uh, I know I'm not alone in feeling this way. I'm not the only one who feels this way. I hate going to the doctor. And I guess there's some real weirdos out there who like to go to the doctor, but I'm not one of those people. Now, I've been blessed with pretty good health, so I kind of have the luxury of not having to go to the doctor all the time. And because I don't like going to the doctor, then I only go when I need to, and then only when I like really need to go to the doctor. And, um, you know, when you go to the doctor, it's kind of interesting because you go knowing that you need some help, right? Uh, you, you know something's wrong. You're not really sure what it is. So you go to the doctor. You know you've got a problem. You don't need the doctor to tell you you're sick. You already know that. What you want is, is to get a, a diagnosis and to, and to get a prescription so you can get better. Well, this morning, our passage is a little bit like going to the doctor. Because in our passage today, we're going to learn some things about ourselves. We're going to learn that we have a sickness, an illness. And this passage tells us the symptoms. Uh, just like going to the doctor, we're going to get a diagnosis. We're going to understand what our real problem is, and then, and then finally we're going to get a prescription. We're going to find out how to treat this illness that we have. So that's where we're headed today. We're going to see some symptoms that we all have, we're going to get a diagnosis, and then we'll see the prescription, how we can treat our condition. And you may remember as we've gone through this series, Anchored, we've explored these warnings that the author of Hebrews gives us. And today's warning, it's kind of a, a tricky one. It's tricky because we hear it and we think, well, that's not for me, I don't have that problem. And that's because today we're talking about the danger of disbelief. And you may hear that and you may say, well, I believe. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm good. No worries there. And if that's your response, I'm glad. I'm glad you believe. That's good. But I want to encourage you. There's a lot happening in this passage this morning. We're going to all learn and we're all going to be challenged by the Bible. We're going to come face to face with the the symptoms that we have. So I think we're all going to be challenged by the danger of disbelief today. And I got to tell you, we're kind of wading into some, some deep waters a little bit today, some, some tricky theology. In fact, I had a conversation earlier this week. Somebody from one of our growth groups was talking about this passage. They looked at this passage in their, in their group, and they said, I got some follow-up questions. And they were good questions, hard questions. It's a tough passage. But we're going to walk our way through it. We don't want to leave anybody behind. And so let me just get one thing out of the way. When we talk about disbelief, I want to make it clear, you can't lose your salvation, okay? That's not a danger that we have to be worried about. You can't respond to God in faith and then have that faith uh, no longer anymore. That's not how it works. That's, That's a question that comes up a lot. Can you lose your salvation? But as I've studied the Bible and our own church doctrine is very clear, a person who's saved is always saved, no matter what. In fact, our church doctrine says it very clearly. It says this, all true believers... Once saved, shall be kept saved forever. Thanks to salvation by grace, Jesus' unending advocacy, God's faithfulness, and the Holy Spirit's presence in our hearts. So there are some folks, some churches that believe you can lose your salvation. That's not what we believe. That's not what we teach here at Trinity. If you have questions about that, you can buy me a cup of coffee, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it. if you want to look up some of the passages there from our doctrinal statement, you can see what they say. But let me just point you to uh, a statement from Jesus, some definitive teaching from Jesus. This comes from John chapter 6. Jesus says, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. 
So Jesus' own teaching tells us that he'll never cast out someone who has come to him. And he tells us that it's God's will that that no one should be lost once they're saved. So once a person is saved, that person is always saved. And all that to say, that's not what we're talking about today. That's not the, the danger of disbelief that the author of Hebrews warns us about. He's not warning us about doing something that can make us lose our salvation. When we say the danger of disbelief, we're talking about something slightly different, and it's something that applies to each of us who are believers. It's a warning for all of us, and it has implications for our whole church. So, as we start, let's take a moment just to, to review where we've been in this book of he- Hebrews, where we've been in this series, Anchored. We started at the very beginning of the book, that, that glorious first sentence. That's, that's chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And that's a, a snapshot of the whole book, really. Jesus is superior to everything else. We can anchor ourselves in him knowing he's capable of making good on his promises. He can be trusted to care for us and, and to shepherd us. And last week we talked about chapter 2, that, that first warning passage that tells us that because of Christ's superiority, because he's the best thing going, then we shouldn't drift away. We should, we should stay anchored to him. We can avoid temptation following the example of Jesus so we don't end up being just another statistic, just another story of failure. And that leads us to today, to the second warning passage, this warning about the danger of disbelief. So let's start just reading the passage, just reading the warning. It comes from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So the first thing we need to notice, this passage, this warning against unbelief, it's written to believers. Notice it starts off brothers and sisters. So the author is talking to fellow believers. He's he's warning them about having an unbelieving heart. So the, the danger of disbelief, it's not just for unsaved people who don't already believe. It's a warning for believers, for brothers and sisters in the faith. That's one of the things that makes this passage a little tricky. But it's important to notice, this is a passage for us. So if you're a believer, a brother, a sister, this is a warning for you. So let's unpack this warning. Let's make some sense of this danger of disbelief. And, and, and starting, we've got to recognize it's a progressive warning, meaning uh, there's, there's steps involved. A person doesn't just wake up one day with an unbelieving heart. There's a progression. Look at the verse one more time. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So this is not just a series of descriptions. It's a, it's a progression. Evil, unbelief, turning away. Those are our steps on the journey. And it starts with, with evil. That's the first part of this warning. Don't let evil into your heart. What does that mean? That's the first step for us. The first dangerous step. I mean... I got bad news for you. There's already evil in your heart. You don't have to do anything to to let it in. It's already there. Even if you've been saved, you're still a human with a human nature. You still have a heart that's bent on selfishness. Until you die or until Christ returns, you'll have evil in your heart. But the first step in this warning talks about feeding that evil, letting that evil have its way in your life. We begin to give way in our lives to sin. Things that God calls evil, they they come in and find their way into our lives. Instead of pushing those things away, we allow evil to come in and make a place at the table. We start to give it our attention. We don't resist, but instead we find a place for those things. We even begin to justify those things to ourselves. 
So first, uh, an idea pops up or a temptation presents itself. We might feel convicted. We might feel uncomfortable about a certain thought or a certain action. We might think, oh, I really shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should go apologize or whatever. But, but then we keep entertaining those things. We start to get a little numb to the conviction. Instead of pushing evil away, we push the conviction away instead. And we justify ourselves. We lie to ourselves to make us feel okay about what we're doing. We think, well, somebody had to say that. Or we think, yeah, I, I really deserve to have this. Or I need that. I don't just want it. I need it. Or we get angry, right? And we speak out. We tell ourselves, well, I'm just speaking hard truth. If they can't handle it, that's their problem. That's letting evil in. Or we gossip. We're talking about other people when they're not around. But instead of responding to conviction about that, we justify it. I mean, everybody knows that gossip is wrong. I don't know anybody who would say, oh yeah, gossip, it's really good for you. It's not harmful at all. No, we all know it's wrong. But we do it anyway. We justify it. We tell ourselves, oh, we're just concerned about that person. Or it's just an extended time of prayer uh, talking about that person. Well, there's a difference between talking about somebody and praying for somebody, right? It's not the same thing. Or maybe we're, we're tight-fisted when it comes to money, and we think uh, we, we, should, we don't live generously the way we should, and we justify it by saying, well, I'm just being a wise steward. I'm just holding on to these resources uh, just in case. Well, no matter what it is, ultimately, it's an attempt to make ourselves feel good about something that God calls evil. I live off of uh, Tyaton Street, not far from the church here, and if you've been that way recently, you know they recently installed a, uh, a roundabout on Tyaton, right? And that's fine for some people, that's fine. Uh, it's great, I guess, for traffic flow problems, but for me, it really stinks because I only always ever go straight through that intersection. Uh, I never really have a need to turn there one way or the other, just straight all the time. And the only time I ever find myself on that particular road is kind of in, uh, you know, off rush hour times. You've got to put rush hour in quotes here in Walla Walla. But uh, so there's never any traffic. So for me, the, the, the roundabout is really pretty useless. I like, uh, it's just created a slowdown for me. It's not solved any problems. It's, it's really an unnecessary thing for me, right? And on the webpage, on the webpage where the city announced the roundabout construction, they have this statement. Uh, I want to know who wrote this because it's beautiful. It says, as drivers become familiar with navigating the mini roundabout, the city requests that people drive slowly and be patient. Well, that should be my reaction to it. Drive slowly and be patient. That should be what I'm doing. But I see it as a real problem for me. Uh, something good, something helpful for somebody. But in my mind, I've taken that good thing and I've made it an annoyance or, or worse. I've let evil slip into my heart. And then I've justified myself and my bad attitude so that every time I pull up to that roundabout, I'm just annoyed. I'm not driving slowly and being patient the way I'm supposed to. I'm just bothered. See, I've taken that first step. I let evil come in where conviction should be. And the worst part, the worst part is as I was driving that way with my wife this week and we pulled up to the roundabout and there actually was some traffic. There were cars coming the other direction, so we had to stop. And, and, you know, just a little bit, just enough to, but we had to stop. And as we're stopped, they're waiting for the traffic to come through. The person behind us honked. I'm like, oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no. <laughs> so you can tell this roundabout has not been a good thing for me. It has definitely been a gateway to let evil into my heart. It feels good to get that off my chest. And, uh, <laughs> 
But that's how it happens. That's the first step. We, we push away conviction, choosing not to listen to that still, small voice of God's loving correction, and instead we justify our own thoughts and actions. I deserve it, or they deserve it, or that roundabout is useless to me and should be abolished. Right? We all have those things in our life. Places where our buttons get pushed and we respond. And all too often our response is one that lets evil in, that lets sin make a place in our heart and and stick around for a while. So that leads to the next step. Look at the verse again. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So after we allow evil to come in and set up shop, the next, stop, or the next step is, is unbelieving. Let's talk about what that looks like. Unbelieving describes what we do to, to cover our own sin and, and to defend our own righteousness. We tell ourselves that what we've done is not really sin. We stop believing the truth of God's word. We start writing our own truth. We tell ourselves we're not sinners who need mercy because what we've done isn't really wrong. We tell ourselves things like, everybody does it. You ever told yourself that? Yeah. Just because that's true doesn't make it a good thing. You know, It might be true that a lot of people have the same sin problem that you and I have, but that doesn't mean that it's not a sin. In fact, if a lot of people do it, chances are good that it probably is a sin because we're all sinners. So we talk ourselves into these things. We, we, we tell ourselves it's not really that big of a deal or everybody does it or whatever we got to do to justify for ourselves our sin. And we end up with street-level disbelief. I mean, if you pressed us, sure, sure, I believe. But on the street level, we end up like that, that lady who, who called into Ellen. You know, I, I love Jesus, but I drink a little. Like, you just, I, yeah, I believe, but I'm going to live how I want. That's it, right? Not a lot of Ellen fans in here, apparently. That's okay. No, no surprise there. <laughs> uh, but street-level disbelief. I mean, if you peel back the layers of our heart, you'd see... Disbelief. You'd see that we've replaced God's truth with the lie that makes us feel good. You see, we satisfy our own longings, not with Jesus, who's superior to everything, but with just cheap substitutes. You'd see a long list of things we've justified for ourselves. And this street-level unbelief, it just paves the way for more sin to come in and take over. It gives more room for sin to operate in our lives. And if we don't stop, if we don't confess and repent and receive God's forgiveness, then we're on the path to continue the progression. There's one more step in this progressive warning, this danger of belief. Look at the verse, verse 12 again. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Turning away, that's the last step. Now, again, we're not talking about losing your salvation. I mean, if salvation is a gift from God, then he would have to be the one to take it away. But but a person, a believer, can turn away from God. And this word translated turn away, it speaks to the idea of, of, of distancing yourself from something or someone, from withdrawing or staying away. And you can do that. That's the, the natural next step after street-level disbelief starts to show up in your life and set up camp. So rather than anchoring ourselves in the grace and mercy of Christ, we turn away. Rather than remembering that we are sinners who are loved by God, we turn away. Rather than remembering the truth about our fickle hearts that God's word teaches us, we we justify ourselves and we withdraw, we turn away. We end up with what the very next verse in Hebrews calls a hardened heart or a deceived heart. Until all the things that used to bother us, all the things we used to feel convicted about, They don't even 
register on our radar anymore. We stop serving. We stop giving. We stop coming to church altogether. We stop praying. We stop reading God's word regularly, if at all. We turn away. And that's the danger of disbelief. It starts small, and it grows to something disastrous. The result is a bunch of believers who aren't doing anything to grow, not doing anything to represent Christ well in the world. They're not acting like salt and light. They just like everybody else. All of us run the risk of living this way. We all face the danger of disbelief. So those are our symptoms. And we put them in this order, this progression. It helps gives us a diagnosis. That's the next thing we need to learn about ourselves. Just like going to the doctor, this passage not only tells us our symptoms, but it gives us a diagnosis. And we're all deceived. We can all be led astray through this progression. We all suffer from spiritual blindness. That's our diagnosis. It's different from physical blindness because spiritual blindness, it's a condition we all have. Sin is deceptive. In fact, studies show 10 out of 10 people are deceived by sin. We're all sinners, right? But the thing to realize is who does sin deceive first? I mean, we could all go around the room. We could pretty easily pinpoint other people's sins, point out other people's sins. That's easy. In fact, why don't you take a moment to turn to your neighbor? And, no, don't do that. Don't do that. It's easy to see sin in other people. You could tell me all the weaknesses that I have. Please don't write that on your connection card. You could do that if you want. But, uh, but the point is, we all notice other people's sins, but we're all taken off guard when somebody points out our sin. You know, So sin deceives first us about ourselves. Uh, just like Jesus says, we can easily see the, the splinter in somebody else's eye, but not the beam of wood in our own eye. Right? Sin is deceptive. So that's why spiritual blindness is different from physical blindness. A physically blind person, they know they're blind. They know they have a challenge, and they take steps to compensate. They surround themselves with helps and aids to lessen the impact of their blindness. Uh, there used to be a guy who would write into the local newspaper, a guy who's visually impaired, and he was always writing about how he'd accomplish certain tasks despite his disability. Uh, so physical blindness is different because you know you're blind, and you take steps to do something about it. But spiritually blind people... We don't even know that we're blind. We're blind to our own blindness. That's our diagnosis. We fall into this danger of disbelief because we don't even believe the truth about ourselves. We don't think we're blind. Just the other day, I went to the eye doctor. I told you I don't like going to the doctor, but I went to the eye doctor for the very first time in my life the other day. And when I went, I thought, my eyesight's okay. But he told me I need bifocals. I'm blind to my own blindness. I didn't know how bad it was. That's how spiritual blindness works. And that's how we, who are believers, can move through this progression into the danger of disbelief. Because we're blind to our own spiritual blindness. We miss the critical problem in our heart, so it's easy to let evil find its way in. So this passage tells us our symptoms, and it gives us our diagnosis, spiritual blindness. And it's a warning to us of what happens if that blindness goes untreated. I mean, if we do nothing, we don't stay the same. We regress. We, we uh, degrade into disbelief. We end up with hardened hearts. But the passage gives us some hope. It gives us a prescription. Just like going to the doctor, we need a spiritual remedy for our blindness. So God is gracious not to leave us blind, but he puts things in our life to help us see ourselves clearly and help us grow into the people he wants us to be. The prescription comes in the very next verse of this passage. Look at Hebrews 3 again. 
Watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. The prescription comes there in verse 13. Encourage each other daily. That's how we avoid being hardened by sin's deception, by our spiritual blindness. The doctor has seen us and he has prescribed regular intervention. That's what we need. And it comes in the form of encouragement. There's a couple of things to make uh, note of here. First of all, this is a, a plural command. It's probably best to read this something like, y'all encourage one another daily so that none of y'all is hardened by sin's deception. It takes all of us looking out for all of us. It's a, it's a group activity. So, so everybody in the body has the role of treating each other's spiritual blindness. We all have the antidote to the danger of disbelief. Each of us has the ability to help others avoid that cycle of evil, unbelief, and falling away. That's why staying involved in church becomes so important. And the way we do it, the way we help, is encouraging. That's what the verse tells us. We encourage one another. And this word encourage, it's a great word. It's a word you might even recognize. In Greek, the word is parakaleo. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus tells us he's sending a a paraclete, a a comforter, or an encourager. That's the same word here. That's why I say you might be familiar with the well-known description of the Holy Spirit. But that's the role we're supposed to play with each other, parakaleo. And the word, it literally means to come alongside. It's a great word. It's so descriptive. Let me share some other meanings with you, some other ways this word can be understood. How do we come alongside? How do we uh, encourage one another? And the word can mean to be present with. Just being present with people is one big way that we encourage one another. Just knowing that there are people in your life that are paying attention to you, that are coming alongside you. Sometimes just knowing you're not alone is a big encouragement. Because that's one of the big things that sin does. Sin wants to isolate you. Wants to make you feel like you're the only one who struggles. Makes you feel like everybody else has their stuff together. Well, none of us has our stuff together. I mean, if you think you have your stuff together, you're spiritually blind. You don't have your stuff together. That's just our human nature, right? So simply being present with people, letting them see you and see that you care, that's a big encouragement. And let me just say, if you kind of feel inadequate to help other people, inadequate to encourage someone, then just rest in this. Rest in the fact that just showing up, just being present with people, that alone is an encouragement. There's some other ways we can understand this word, this challenge to encourage one another. Another meaning is the idea of of cheering along others. Everybody needs a cheerleader, right? Everybody wants to know there's somebody on their team, especially when you're facing hard stuff, when you're doing hard things. You just want to know there's somebody in your corner. Well, you get to be the the mick to somebody else's Rocky Balboa, right? This gets to the other way we can understand this word. It means to instill someone with courage. You're basically telling the person, you can do this. I believe in you. That's cheering along. That's, That's paracleting, right? Several years ago in my growth group, one of the folks in the group lost her job, a real sudden job loss. And I don't know if you've ever lost a job. It's pretty demoralizing. You know, you start to think all your worth is tied up in that, and then now you don't have that job, and you're really a worthless person. You feel rejected, or or maybe you get angry about losing your job. You want to let bitterness come in. You want to lash out at people. Those are all chances to let evil take hold of your heart, right? 
all chances to let sin start to have mastery over you. But in our group, we all took on the role of cheerleader. We kept reminding her, you're better than that. We, we know you're going to find another job. You have value. You have identity in Christ. We encourage each other daily all through that process, just like the passage says. And that was just the prescription she needed. Or think about a person who's running a marathon, right? They always want a person to come alongside and cheer for them. But here's the thing. If you're the cheerleader, you just stand there on the side of the track and you watch that person run by. Hey, you can do it. And they're gone, right? You, you Maybe enough time to, to hand them a Gatorade or whatever. So, so cheering, instilling somebody with courage, it's, it's not complicated. It's just coming alongside a person, just cheering for that person, praying for somebody, and then letting them know that you're praying. I got a note the other day from a person who just said, hey, I wanted you to know I'm praying for you today. I mean, it's so encouraging. It came at just the right time for me. It helps instill other people with courage because we're all in this spiritual battle together. I want to share one more way this prescription shows up, one more way we can encourage one another. The same word, this parakaleo, it can mean simply to invite someone in. Inviting someone in. Just inviting people into your life, it's its own encouragement. Just letting people come in and be a part of your life communicates that you value those people and you need those people, you trust those people. And when we say inviting people in, that sounds scary, that sounds you know weird, like how do I do that? Well, I came across something this week that's so helpful. It's helpful because it just breaks down for us what this kind of encouraging each other looks like. The author said, essentially, when you invite someone in, you're inviting them in, this is what they said, to to share the things we value the most, family, home, financial resources, food, privacy, and time. In other words, we share our lives. Let me read that list of things again. We share the things we value the most, family, home, financial resources, food, privacy, and time. So we share our family, meaning that the time we might normally spend just with our family, we give some of that time and energy to others. So we can be an encouragement to them, and they can encourage us. We share our home, meaning we we literally invite people in to be with us. You know, in our culture, the, the home has become kind of an idol of this sanctuary away from the world, but our home should be open, ready to receive our brothers and sisters, inviting them in. We share our financial resources, big ways and little ways, just doing things for people, making things for people, giving gifts. Everybody's encouraged by gifts, right? We share our food. Maybe you love to cook. You want to encourage people that way, or maybe you just love to eat. Take somebody out to dinner or lunch. And we share our privacy. That's where it gets a little hard. We invite people not just into our homes, not just in the, the, the nice living room that we clean knowing that people are coming over, but we invite them in to our privacy. It takes a little bit of vulnerability. Ultimately, that's the key with all of this kind of encouragement, just being willing to be vulnerable, real with people. That's frankly the key to every good relationship, just inviting people in, allowing ourselves to be known so that we can be encouraged, so that we can be cheered on, so we can have people come alongside us and we can fill that role for other people. One of our growth group leaders was talking a while back, and he'd been at a church in the past where they'd been through a pastoral transition, and apparently it did not go very well. They had some real challenges, some real hurt feelings, and he was kind of wounded by that experience. And uh, so he was here, and when we started our own transition, he was scared. He didn't want to go through all that same stuff again. And he honestly, he thought about just walking away, just, just going to some other church where he could just attend, slip in, slip out, that kind of a thing, but he didn't. He resisted that temptation, and, 
And he said there was one thing that really made the difference for him, made him stick around. It was his growth group. Uh, he's leading the group, and as a leader, you kind of feel like you got the job to encourage the other people, and you got the job of helping everybody else in your group. But for this leader, he found the encouragement he needed from his group. So he's, he's here, he's sticking it out here precisely because he put himself in a position to encourage each other. He surrounded himself with relationships that are encouraging to him, and he's been a great encouragement to other people as well. And that's the same kind of encouraging relationships I want for each and every one of us. And that's exactly why we have growth groups here at Trinity. We say groups are the place where you're going to make your best friends. And what we mean by that is just what this leader found out. You're going to make friends who are going to come alongside you, going to cheer you along when you need it the most. And that's why we say our groups are the place where you receive your best care. People who know you, people who are in your life each and every week, they're going to be in the best position to encourage you, to care for you when you really need it. And finally, we say our growth groups are the place where you're going to take your biggest next steps. That just means you're putting yourself in a position to grow in your relationship with the Lord. You're surrounding yourself with people who want to help you grow, who want to help you grow and who want to grow themselves. And you put yourself with a leader who stands ready to help each of you grow. So if you're ready to get your prescription filled, if you need some encouragement, if you're in need of some cheering along, then I'd love to see you join a growth group. Get yourself some relationships like these. Our groups, they meet in homes throughout the week. They're all led by great, well-trained leaders who would love to help you grow, to help you get the care and the relationships that you need. The best way I know for you to get started in these kind of relationships is to come to GroupLink. You've got information about it in your worship folder, but GroupLink's a one-time event where you show up You meet some folks, you meet some group leaders, and you can leave connected to a group. It's just that easy. It's coming up soon, and if you're interested, you can mark your connection card so that we know to expect you. But joining a group, surrounding yourself with people who are going to encourage you, that's how you treat the condition that we all suffer from. That's how you fill the prescription of encouraging each other. You encourage them, they encourage you. And you can either keep trying to treat the symptoms Keep trying to deal with the evil in your heart on your own, or you could treat the disease with a prescription that's really going to help. Let's choose to surround ourselves with people who can come alongside us, who can encourage us. Let's pray. God, that is indeed our prayer. We know we can't do it alone. We know that uh, we don't even need you to tell us that we've got evil in our hearts. We know ourselves. We know what's in our hearts. And, uh, and we thank you that you haven't left us alone that your son has not only paid the price to uh, rescue us from that evil, but is also you've provided each other, you've provided us this prescription of how to encourage one another, how to work through that spiritual blindness that we all suffer from, Lord. And so we want to enter into that process. We want to be people who are encouraging each other, who are allowing ourselves to be vulnerable enough to encourage, uh, to be encouraged by other people, Lord. And so that's my prayer, that this week we would be even more drawn to each other, that we would be a church that's not just uh, going through the motions, not just like anybody else, but a church that stands out, that impacts this valley with the gospel because we're people who love each other enough to be challenged and to, uh, to encourage one another towards spiritual health and growth. And so we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.